the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary, covering monetary, economic, and geopolitical news events. What we see in the cycle ahead, and I think what we have with Russia and Ukraine is just the tip of the iceberg. Real things with income become even more important in a period where you don't know what you own, you don't know if you get anything, and you can't count on a capital gain. So you start a total return equation with, what's my income? And hopefully I bought it right so that there's a capital gain on top of that. That is a different approach altogether, and it's an approach that is appropriate in the context of greater stress and strain. Now here are Kevin Oreck and David McIlvaney. Welcome to the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. I'm Kevin Oreck along with David McIlvaney. Last night we were talking, Dave, just about uh, control and uh, how oftentimes the people who think they're in control really aren't. And I was thinking about a, a storybook that I remember as a kid called The King, the Mice, and the Cheese. And this king, he was a cheese connoisseur. So, you know, you're sort of a connoisseur yourself, Dave. But this king, he decided uh, that the mice were too much of a threat for his cheese. And so he brought in cats. And the cats got rid of the mice, but the problem was now the kingdom was full of cats. And then he, he brought in dogs and, and that got rid of the cats. But of course the kingdom then was overwhelmed with dogs and it goes on and on. It, the animals get bigger and bigger. The problem gets bigger and bigger all because he tried to control the mice so that they wouldn't eat his cheese. And I think about this, Dave, we've got all these central planners, whether they're central bankers or from a political standpoint from the top. I think they think they have control, but in reality, they're just causing bigger problems. You know, the classic quote is from Ben Bernanke back in December 2010. We will not allow inflation to rise above 2%. <laughs> we could raise interest rates in 15 minutes if we had to. I remember that. What Was that 2011 you said? <laughs> 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. Yeah. And I mean, he said other things. There's really no problem with raising rates, tightening monetary policy, slowing the economy, reducing inflation at the appropriate time. I mean, these are, these are things that are said offhand as if you just snap your fingers and it's done. And yeah, I remember Jim Cramer just last summer, middle of summer. He, you, you remember the CNBC guy, um, Madman Cramer. The market is signaling that commodity inflation is pretty much over. Yeah. And he said that, what, six months ago, seven months ago? Ten months now. So Ten it's, months, it's, yeah. It's, wow. it's interesting. Yeah. It's kind of a classic thing. You know, Doug, our in-house credit analyst and uh, just a fantastic manager of details and process, right. uh, was on target with crystal clarity, as usual, on last week's tactical short call. We've got the transcript and the audio that are now available. And... I would say that the theme from the weekend's credit bubble bulletin is worth looking at carefully on your own time as well. We are, and the title of it is transitioning to a new cycle. And we are, we're transitioning to a new cycle. If investors grasp what is the same and what is different in the years ahead at a very foundational level, the opportunities are going to be clearer and many of the risks will be mitigated. So interest in self-preservation 
which I would categorize as sort of asset preservation, and interest in growth should at this point, I think, compel an investor's curiosity to consider an alternative view to the financial markets. Well, you know, while we've been doing this commentary, I remember we started this commentary in 2008 when we were just beginning the global financial crisis. And we've seen an awful lot of things, Dave, but what we probably were the most intrigued by and frustrated by is this 10-year period of this thought that the central bankers could solve any problem. In a way, it was the king, the mice, and the cheese. You just bring in a bigger animal. You, you know, Quantitative easing was the cats that got rid of the mice. And then there was quantitative easing, too, which is the dogs that got rid of the cats. But, but things were building and building and building until you have the potential for collapse. Now, what Doug's talking about is transitioning to a new cycle. What that means is possibly transitioning from the thought process that we can be saved by central planning. So go back to 2008, our conversation with Otmar Issing and, you know, longest standing member of the European Central Bank, first chief economist at the European Central Bank and quite an interesting character. We read him in the Financial Times here in the last few days talking about the policy mistakes. These are, Central bankers don't like to poke and prod other central bankers. So criticism, you need to realize that there's a, a sacrifice made in opening your mouth at all. So the fact that he's critical of central bank policy and, and what has basically exacerbated major inflation trends which are very, very concerning to him. I think it's it's noteworthy. It's noteworthy. You've got commodities which continue to pull away as a leading indicator of a decades-long shift, favoring hard assets mm. over financial assets. And that just happens to be our sweet spot. Hard assets, the hard asset portfolio that we manage, looking at those four spheres we often talk about, infrastructure, uh, global natural resources, real estate, precious metals, and the mining companies specifically, that's an area of interest for us. And it's not an accident that we're there. This kind of a transition is one that we have anticipated as we see a change within the structure of the financial markets. So, yeah, and you're not even taking into account the European conflict. No, I mean, you beyond, were positioning before that. Exactly. Beyond the news cycle pertaining to the European conflict, you get the underpinnings of a leveraged financial market that are shifting. And it's changing many of the operational factors that investors and asset managers have relied on. They've had the benefits of financial wizardry, easy capital raising, you know, the shadow banking, which has sort of undercut traditional lending and moved a lot of things into the quote unquote shadows. But do assumptions change? Because really, most of the money managers out there, a lot of them at least, I don't know what the percentage is, have not been managing in any other kind of environment other than the central bank QE environment. Well, and I think what has become the cultural norm is accommodation in every form and variety. If it's deregulation of the late 90s, that's one form of market accommodation. Then comes the monetary policy accommodation. Then comes the fiscal policy accommodation. And so, yeah, I, the assumptions amongst Wall Street investors are accommodation, accommodation, accommodation. Pick your variety. But in this case, I think if you're talking about the average investor – or the speculator, they should reconsider their assumptions. The most basic assumptions about how liquid and how reliable the markets are. And I think exhibit A for this is the presumed healthy markets of the corporate debt market. So if you look at how they have behaved in recent weeks and, and, and how the Fed has had to actually intervene not in recent weeks, but within the last year or two, anytime there's a hiccup within the debt markets. 
you've got up cycles which feed on themselves and perpetuate momentum. Down cycles, it's not just a question of negatively feeding on themselves. You get every dynamic that's changed, and the debt markets are more and more in disarray. And certainly, you're, if you look at long-dated treasuries, they're suggesting that all is not well as you move on to the horizon, even two, three, and four years out. Well, that's the safe money. I mean, the safe money, if you said, where do we go if we wanted to just have the safest money? You're going to say 10-year treasuries. 10-year treasuries have moved up, I believe, faster from a percentage standpoint than any time in our lifetime. And we've seen the same kind of moves mirrored in the 30-year mortgage market, which we talked about last week, from three and a quarter to over 5%. So the 10-year treasury yields are up just below 100 basis points since February 24th, and that's the invasion of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But it's by coincidence that they're up. Yeah, inflation predates the invasion. Higher rates predate the, the February 24th. The invasion certainly underscores commodity volatility, but the energy security factors and the grain price explosion, I mean, these are all things that have stressed the markets. There certainly has been a distant impact on bond yields, but all these things were in motion prior to February 24th. Well, and how about Germany? I mean, we've talked over the last few years since 2015, you know, before 2015, no one in history in 4,000 years had ever seen a negative interest rate nominally. Right. And then after 2015, we started seeing it in Germany. Germany has been hovering below zero for years now. Now they're above it. They've reversed course Less than 12 months ago, negative 50 basis points, half a percent. Now positive 93 basis points. That's amazing. Hmm. Bondholders and banks that are stuffed to the gills with sovereign paper, they're giving back the free money. That is the capital gains that were created when central banks kept on buying, expanding their balance sheet, buying new assets, driving interest rates even lower, creating the capital gains and an asset opportunity for them. Yeah, again, this was the universally adopted QE programs. Well, now it's working in reverse. And in many cases, not only have they given up the temporary gains, but they're now bleeding mm. as rates increase further. And you can see the rate market. It's still well behind the inflationary shifts registered in the markets. Last week, we talked about the 8.5% CPI and the over 11% PPI numbers. Um, so, you know, rates are still well below their historical averages, and the bleeding has already begun. Yeah, but the safe money, the safe money, Dave. I mean, a 30-year treasury is down, what, 18% now? Over, over 18% year to date. That's one of the toughest quarters in recent memory with investment-grade corporate investors. Investment-grade, keep in mind, this is higher quality debt obligations. It's lost 12.5% this mm -hmm. year, just year to date. Junk bond investors are off six and three quarters percent. And, you know, one has to wonder, will there be temporary relief for the fixed income afflicted? Because it's been really, really uncomfortable here in the first quarter. So perhaps in the next CPI, PPI print, if it runs at a lower rate of growth, or perhaps when the U.S. 10-year crests 3%, then we see some moderation in the interest rate trend on a temporary basis. We mentioned the 30-year fixed rate mortgage hitting 5% last week. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who've waited to buy real estate because they see this overheated market. And they're, they're like, you know what? We're just going to rent until we can buy real estate. But look at what's happening to rent right now. Well, because rents are on the rise. Now they have to reconsider the equation rather than wait for a value. They're getting squeezed. 
And, and we're in this interesting place because if the mortgage rate's 5%, now comes the digestion phase. Sellers stubborn to lower price and buyers being forced to rerun their calculations or projections, cash flow affordability calculations. Because the mortgage, mortgage payments pay. are going up. Yeah, the yeah. interest. If rents were not on a moonshot, I think home buyers or potential home buyers would slow down even further and just wait. But the month on month or year on year increases in rent, that's another motivator to get them into a place they can call their own. Get in while you can. Hmm. Even as we mentioned last week, the new form of FOMO is not get in while you can. It's being heard by the sellers. Get out while you can. Yeah, so the fear of missing out has shifted. And lest we forget, there's only one genius in any transaction. So <laughs> who's coming in at the right time, who's getting out at the right time, really that can only be answered one way. There's a huge, if you're looking at the difference between the U.S. housing market and the Chinese housing market, U.S. housing is relatively undersupplied. The Chinese market has a huge overhang of supply. And so a lot more scarcity here in the U.S. But the driver of affordability here in the U.S. is one part price paid mm -hmm. and the other part interest cost. So where are your interest rates? And at 5%, all of a sudden, it's really beginning a nasty interaction with the price paid. And that's the reason for pause or at least question whether for different reasons, you know, both real estate markets aren't a bit a little bit like the wily e. coyote, you know, 10 feet past the edge of the cliff waiting for gravity to kick in. Mm. And so the really interesting factor for China is that you've already had steep declines in volumes of transactions, you know, and part of this is COVID related clearly, but volumes in China are off more than 50%, but with no step down in price. Mm. And that just, mm. again, I, I see Wiley hanging out there waiting for gravity to kick in. We lose money on every transaction. We make it up in volume. Whoops. Oh, no. Oh, ah! <laughs> you know? Okay. So, but let's go ahead and look at last year. Uh, my son moved his wife out from California and they could not get a U-Haul in California. It was very, very difficult because everybody was leaving California. Nobody was bringing those U-Hauls back because people were not wanting to move back in. That's happening right now in the investment grade bonds. It's happening in the high yield bonds. What we're seeing is if we were watching them in the form of U-Hauls, we're seeing exits, not entrances to those bonds. Yeah, it's a reconsideration of the cycle. And I think we're still at the front edge of it. But last week's chunky outflows, both from investment grade and high yield, that is the old junk debt, I think that's a small indicator of appetite shifting. Now, not too small, four and a half billion dollars in investment grade outflows and an additional four billion, which left the junk markets, 12 billion across all U.S. credit markets hit the exits last week. And globally, 14 and a half billion moved to the sidelines. So the credit markets, you know, what are they seeing? Is this a one-off type thing? They'll be back next week. For now, the bond market carnage ties to a swift shift higher in interest rates and a growing concern over inflation being really like a tablecloth. It's set underneath whatever is being served going forward. And that's really a big change in terms of how an investor has to think. You just have to presume that it is present and it's a part of what's being served. Yeah, but not just the investor. I mean, think about the corporations that have gotten used to easy credit. At this point, that's going to probably bite them in the butt. Well, interest costs, if they do go up, impinge on corporate profits. 
And if they do go down, allow for greater leverage and greater growth and greater flexibility in share buybacks and, and one-off dividends. But as interest costs impinge on corporate profits, the negative feedback loop of, of higher rates, pressuring corporate credit sustainability on the other side of, of their rollovers and refis, it reveals weakness. It reveals weakness in credit quality. And that's the really important feedback loop. <laughs> it starts to impact credit quality directly. Junk, I think, will end up catching up with investment grade debt and treasury debt on the downside. And on the basis of credit concerns, right now it's all interest rates. It's all how higher interest rates going and, and how does this relate to inflation. But at some point, again, interest costs impact credit quality. Credit quality impacts the pricing of that the other set of bonds, junk, and you close the performance gap. So in a weird twist of fate, junk has been safer than treasury debt in a year-to-date setting. But that's because it's not credit that's being called into question. It's just interest rate sensitivity. Credit is another round of decay and decline in the debt markets. Well, and as far as the junk markets go, I think a lot of those junk issuers are energy related. So they haven't really felt this yet because energy prices have been going up. Well, that's right. Outperformance, a lot of the debt issued in the junk category. I mean, I don't know if it's a majority, 40, 50%. It's close. It's close to half. A high percentage of issuers are from the energy sector. So you're right, with crude registering year-to-date gains of 40%, with gasoline up over 50%, with natural gas with a 100% increase year-to-date, you know, this is why you don't have a lot of pressure on the junk market. So Reuters, um, you know, thinking of just of the, the natural gas increase and gasoline increase and, and crude increase, you, you might be tempted to say, oh, well, it's a great time for an energy transition. <laughs> Contract prices for renewables, that is the components for wind and solar, just as an aside, are up 28.5% year-to-date in the U.S., 27.5% in Europe. So there may be a further trigger for the junk markets if you tie in the huge amount of energy in that to the degree that you see pressure in the energy markets. uh, You could actually see junk start to play that catch-up on the downside catch up in terms of weak performance. So uh, further trigger for the junk markets outside of the growth restraints experience from slimmer access to credit and higher interest costs required for that credit could be the alleviation of energy momentum from some kind of a peace deal or a break in the, in the Russia. Well, and that's what I was going to ask. What if energy prices drop for some unexpected reason? Like you said, maybe there's a peace deal. Uh, the Russia Ukraine thing is obviously held oil up at a higher level. I think you said at least 20% higher. Yeah. Just think about the dominoes. If a really positive outcome with Russia Ukraine takes out $20, $30 of premium in crude and gasoline prices start to normalize, maybe we lose a buck there. And all of a sudden, what has been propping up junk debt isn't really propping up as much. So good news for the markets and the world may be bad news for junk in in a scenario like that. Hmm. Look, Putin's more desperate by the day, and I'm not sure that he's not inclined towards an increase in violence and an increase in, in body count. So, you know, that's the other side of the equation. You know, on the one hand, we may have lower oil prices with resolution and, and lower prices in the junk bond market, higher yields. On the other hand, higher prices seem to be consistent with Putin's desperate circumstances. And we're already 
seeing prices in the oil markets recover back to the levels prior to Biden's announcement of the 180 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Okay, so back to the idea of transitioning to a new cycle. We all have gotten used to QE, easing, 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 loose, 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 easing, easing, easing. There's always been somebody to buy whatever looks like it was going to be a bad buy or it was falling in value. But now, is this transitioning going to the TTT, tighten, 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 rather than loose, loose, loose? Yeah, I mean, and and again, what's in the mind of the investment community is this truth that the Federal Reserve has the power. When Ben Bernanke was saying, we will not allow inflation to rise above 2%, or else we could raise rates in 15 minutes if we had to. Well, there is the belief that what he says corresponds to reality. And to the degree that it corresponds to reality, what he says has efficacy in the markets. But what if it's not true? What if it's just a show of force? What if he's just posturing, right? So back to this idea of transitioning to a new cycle, it's become axiomatic that the financial market weakness conjures the power of the Fed. Everyone expects them to be on the scene instantly, to fix, to inflate, to back any market-generated losses. And, And so what has the policy prescription been for now decades, loose, looser, and loosest are the three modes of operation ingrained in the subconscious of the investment community. Loose, right. looser, and loosest. How do you break that cycle? Yeah, the Fed's suggesting tight, tighter, and tightest as the three new possibilities, and that really hasn't dawned on the financial markets. The Fed's suggesting tight, tighter, and tightest, talking and maybe even acting differently than before, presents itself as a real challenge for the investing faithful. And so a shift in tone here is pretty critical to the outcomes in a portfolio. One of the things we don't really see, but is out there in spades, it's much larger than the actual markets themselves, is the markets that insure those markets. So, you know, if you're issuing hedges against something happening, if you know that the Fed has always got the markets back, that insurance isn't going to cost much. But If you also know that there's a transition, you're talking about transitioning to a new cycle, or Doug was talking about transitioning to a new cycle. If that's the case, and you're the guy who puts those insurance hedges out there, it's going to cost more and more, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's that's right. Doug loves to talk about how easy it is to write flood insurance in the middle of a drought. And it's cheap, and you figure yourself, you've got yourself covered. You can take all kinds of risks because it's not going to rain anyways. Well, now we've had some torrential rains, and we'd like to say, okay, this is a two-sigma, three-sigma, six-sigma event. Not going to happen for a long time. But then all of a sudden you look at the flood insurance, and it's a little bit more expensive. You should moderate your risk-taking if you can't adequately cover the risk with that insurance. The insurance you can no longer afford on the same terms, is it going to change your behavior? The market's saying, no, it's not going to change your behavior. We're still going to speculate. It's fascinating because that means there's a lot of money at risk. Hmm. There's a lot of money that is not hedged, and to the degree that it is hedged, it's assuming that those hedges will hold. They'll hold. Well, we're talking a derivatives market that's many, many times larger than the markets that they hedge. Right. So high risk taking on leverage with other people's money has been career making Yeah. for the hedge fund community. And in a lot of instances, the downside has been covered by cheap insurance. The derivatives market is undergoing fundamental shifts, both in terms of cost and availability, which takes the leverage speculator into a new realm where they have to consider tightened 
parameters. If you can't cheaply hedge a position, you either take more risk or you reduce the size of the exposure. And here's, here's the thing. If you're looking at the first significant new cycle reality being a shift in tone at the Fed from loose, looser and loosest to potentially tight, tighter and tightest. <laughs> very now, tightest. Very now, tightest. Now layer on top of that the tightening dynamic of someone who has to reduce their risk exposures because they can't hedge them adequately. Mm. Right. So you're talking about liquidity leaving the system because of the Fed liquidity leaving the system because levered speculators can't get enough of a hedge at a cheap enough price to in the months and years ahead reduce leverage in the system as a result of increased hedge costs and decrease counterparty willingness to participate that changes the flows of capital the financial times had an article on this over the weekend looking specifically at commodity volatility as a trigger for counterparty pressures and a reduced willingness to offer market hedging but the same idea holds across a variety of asset classes right you need low volatility to play your games somebody who's building out a mortgage-backed securities portfolio hedges the mortgage portfolio in the treasury market well it's been almost too volatile to do that hmm. so what does the mortgage-backed securities trader do to hedge interest rate risk if in fact you're hemorrhaging within <laughs> the treasury market right so all of these low volatility solutions i think you know the ray dalios of the world using treasuries as an equity hedge now losing on both sides of the portfolio right. stock prices decline bonds declining instead of diversification you've got devastation it's it's like a double barrel blasting simultaneously well it's that whole theory that proves to be wrong sometimes and that is that when you're not wanting to be in equities you move over to bonds and when you don't want to be in bonds you move over to equities but if they're moving in tandem that really hurts that strategy doesn't it it does. And, you know, there was this controlled process. Again, it implied that there was so many of the levers, four different levers, actually, that could be pulled and managed by centrally planned geniuses, right? I, this is, again, Ray Dalio's view of a beautiful deleveraging, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure when his eyes were rolling back in his head and images of beautiful deleveraging were happening, what's happening now was not filling his brain space. You know, this this is the opposite. <laughs> We've hardly seen any deleveraging in the financial markets. And yet, you know, these kinds of strategies, low volatility, managed risk, you know, offsetting equity volatility with bond exposure. Wait until a real deleveraging event occurs. Hmm. And in that context, remember, the Fed balance sheet is is supposed to be shrinking, not expanding. This is what we have to deal with. What do leveraged assets do in a deleveraging event where the Fed balance sheet is, at least on a temporary basis, undependable? Again, you used to say, well, they'll buy it, you know, just like the Bank of Japan. Well, they'll buy government bonds. They'll buy corporate bonds. They'll buy mortgage-backed securities. They'll buy stocks. They'll buy ETFs. They'll buy it all. Well, the Fed's telling us that they're going to reduce their exposures by $95 billion, not expand them at all. Again, so we have these like temporary periods, which are going to be really dicey, where they have verbally committed to doing nothing in terms of balance sheet expansion, markets requiring them to do something, and they've got the pressure. What do we do? We've gotten to the point with this control of hearing the term risk on, risk off. Anytime people were 
feeling comfortable, they would just say, okay, risk on. Let's just go buy risk assets. The problem is most people don't realize that the stuff that they were thinking of risk off assets, they weren't risk off assets. They were just risk off because the Fed was buying them. At this point, everything is risk on. Isn't it? I mean, it's a different kind of risk, though. This isn't a, hey, we're speculating that it's going up. It's a Dalio going, wait a second, where do I hide? Right. Well, and I mean, on a day-to-day basis, it depends. You know, this week we've had days where it was risk on again. And lo and behold, your cryptocurrencies go crazy along with the Dow and the S&P and the Russell. Gold drops off. Treasuries, uh, you know, slow their move. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a, there's a moderation But, you know, the news cycle we're talking about is not something that unfolds in a day or a week. This is going to be with us quarters, years, who knows, but potentially a very long time. The news cycle puts risk assets of all varieties at higher risk. And non-risk assets, like treasuries, also at risk. So inflation, in a sense, is like an animal that can eat you anytime it wants, night or day. It's just a question of how big a bite is taken. And that that constant threat of being devoured, it changes the atmosphere for investors. It changes the atmosphere for small-time speculators, hedge fund titans, everybody. Uh, you know, inflation was treated, and again, we go back to this sort of, you know, we got this. Bernanke's comments and, you know, Powell's been different. We got this. Inflation was treated like a dinosaur, by our PhD money managers. You remember John Hammond? Mm, The vision of curiosity, a thrill, the perfect entertainment. Beasts that had been sufficiently modified and controlled and controls put in place around them that you could bring the public into direct contact with the creatures of Jurassic Park. Right. Right. (laughs) Welcome to the jungle, baby. And you remember when asked, (laughs) well, what what about when they multiply? And they're like, well, well, they don't multiply. We made them all females. It's just the arrogance there. Right. And he said later in the movie, it comes up. Well, wait, how did you do that? Well, we used frog DNA. Well, there's a problem. Oops. Looks like they are multiplying. So, yeah, you're exactly right. In a way, Bernanke was like Hammond in that let's go ahead and slap that we've got control inflation on a lunchbox. Let's slap it on a T-shirt. Let's let's bring them in. It's no big deal. It's not going to eat them. We're good. What they conveyed was what was necessary to convey, which is we've got this. You, you want to convey competence so that confidence remains. And that's what the challenge is in this current environment where market forces, they may be forced to backtrack from the 95 billion in balance sheet reduction to ex- exact the the opposite expanding it again just to save the financial markets what's at risk is their credibility right so so how do they operate without credibility you know i don't know if you've ever been to yeah, a nice restaurant where you just thought this was the greatest experience ever. Everything came together. The service was impeccable. The ambiance was great. The lighting, the music was not too loud. It just everything came together. And the meal was perfectly presented. The flavor combinations, just everything worked. And, and, and in that environment, you just, you know, you, you have a certain experience. I think this transition to a new cycle is like a different kind of dining experience. Instead of being the dinner that you remember as being so special and beautiful and nice, you know, you, we continue to see consumer price pressures. They're lingering, they're lingering, they're lingering. They're creating sort of an agitation in the background. So not only is the policy tone different, which we talked about earlier, the Fed is coming and they're coming to tighten, tighten, tighten. 
Just imagine the perfect dining experience, except the music has changed in the background. It was soft and dulcet tones, and that's been replaced with jarring and discordant music. <laughs> it's just different. You're not quite as comfortable. And what's being served is foreign. You don't know what it is. It actually looks a little scary, maybe way undercooked, on top of a soiled tablecloth that makes you even a little bit more uncomfortable. So would you give it a five-star review? No, it just, no, what didn't really meet my expectations. If you were to say something of it, it's not what it used to be, or it was, it's, you know, must be under new management, or things seem to have changed, the vibe's all wrong. You give it a one-star review. And that's, we're moving into a cycle where all the backdrop stuff is different. We didn't have inflation, like the tablecloth on the table. Yep. It soils things. It's just unpleasant. So Nobody likes it. Things have changed. Things have changed. But, you know, something that doesn't change much, honestly, through the years is gold. Okay. I'm sorry. I may sound like I'm a, a broken record, but when things get uncomfortable and things start to look like they're uncertain or things look like they're changing, I mean, an ounce of gold is always, it's really boring. It buys a loaf of bread a day, 365 days. A loaf of bread a day for a year. That is really boring, but it's done it for 4,000 years. Well, hard assets are a little like comfort food in a time of stress. It's easy to appreciate. There's nothing complex. It's like an old-fashioned recipe for satisfaction when other alternatives seem a little too adventurous, maybe risky. You're concerned that maybe you'll be sick and, and you just can't do that. Okay, so we're talking about the financial markets. We're talking about changes in economics, but... You know, we've been reading this book, Why We Fight, uh, with Chris Blattman, and you're going to talk to him next week. And I'm really looking forward to that because we are seeing things change also in the Ukrainian situation. Yeah. I, you know, just something to keep in mind, and it doesn't directly relate to the book, Why We Fight, but real things and real things with income have tended to make sense in periods of time that are discordant. The most recent cycle was marked by globalization and expansion of trade and interactions on a cross-border basis, more peace, right? And in that environment, there's a greater extension of risk. People are willing to get creative when it comes to financial structures and leveraging those structures. There's less tolerance for leverage and financial engineering when things come under pressure. What we see in the cycle ahead, and I think what we have with Russia and Ukraine is just the tip of the iceberg, a multi-decade stressor for the globalization trends that we've taken for granted over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Real things with income become even more important in a period where you don't know what you own, you don't know if you get anything, and you can't count on a capital gain. So you start a total return equation with what's my income? And hopefully I bought it right so that there's a capital gain on top of that. That is a different approach altogether, and it's an approach that is appropriate in the context of greater stress and strain. So, you know, fascinated by the history of globalization and the multiple periods of globalization we've had, but also I'm fascinated by the periods of deglobalization that we've had. And as you see greater strife between countries, you see a shift in allocations in assets. You bring up such an important point. You brought up the conversation with Otmar Issing, who was the head of the European Central Bank for seven years. 
And, you know, you talked to him in 2008, but the thing that the poignant part of that interview, I mean, you and I both remember this about halfway through the interview, he started really trusting the interviewer. He tr- started wanting to be transparent as to what his modes were or his uh, modus was for, you know, wanting to see the Euro work. And that was the story. It, tell that story of it was his father and his father was a prison guard in Germany. And he was sitting across the table from a man who his father was a prisoner in the prison in Germany in World War II. And Otmar at that point shared with you. This is why we're doing what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. We don't want to see this ever happen again. Right. So, you know, behind the weapons that we send to Ukraine, there is a motivation to create greater stability. We're sending a lot of weapons. Hmm. AP reports 1,400 Stinger missiles. Okay, that's that's a classic rehash of shooting down hindy helicopter gunships from the skies and in Angola and Afghanistan. I mean, Stingers have been an, an effective tool in our arsenal for a long time. Hmm. We've got 12,000 weapons specifically for taking out armored vehicles. We've got 50 million rounds of ammunition, which the U.S. has sent to Ukraine, and a fresh promise of 800 million more $800 million more in arms. That does not include the European countries, what they're providing. Between Ukrainian muscle and the, the global contribution to iron and brass, it's intriguing. Um, I, I think it's timely that we, we talk with Chris Blattman next week. His book is officially out this week, hot off the press. You can order it online today, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. Yeah, it's been a really interesting read, Dave. Just looking at the five categories of why peace breaks down, you were talking about globalization, and and one of his solutions is interdependence. In a global way, if you look at at, uh, Europe in the late 1800s, okay, they were interdependent on each other. They had a gold standard. They were settling up debts. They had strange alliances that could hold together as long as everybody wanted to continue to do business. Now, now that broke down. That broke down by 1914, and, and uh, hopefully Chris will cover that. But there's also another added element in the breakdown of things, and that is when you do have these tensions like with war, it affects other things other than just living and dying with bullets. It affects food. It affects economy in different ways. You had brought up, oh, I think it was about a month ago, how this war may affect actually the wheat harvest and some of the things that we, we don't normally take into account. Yeah, and this is why I quoted the Bank of International Settlements last week looking at this being a new era of inflation. Because when you're talking about deglobalization, you're talking about an increase in greater frictions, pressures on product pricing because the input costs, whether it's the labor costs or the commodity costs, it's tougher. You've got uh, the ease of acquisition for those products, which is changed. You've got shipping and distribution, which is changed. And each little friction that you add in the production process adds an increase to price. So essentially, if you think about a reduction in frictions, that's the net benefit of, of globalization. And deglobalization, all you're doing is increasing frictional costs. And that means that the BIS is likely right. It's, it's like that sound your car makes when it needs oil. It, things just start working out of order at first. You know, it's a, it's a right. click, 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 click. Yep. And so you look at the Bloomberg article this week that, that looks at Ukrainian ag harvests. They're now expected to be cut in half this year, right? Oh. So this, this extends our commodity price elevated price, you know, trajectory and time frame and calendar well beyond 
a month, two months, three months, we are now going to have to deal with it for a six to 12 month period. Planting is interrupted. Now you have fields which have been mined. That's a bit of an issue. You get lack of fuel. Fertilizer is even scarcer by the day. And when they can get it, paying the high prices they are for it, guess what? They're using a reduced amount, which means the yield crops that they are able to plant and harvest are going to be reduced as well. Do you so, think Putin misjudged this? Uh, you know, he, he was trying to keep NATO from being too powerful. And now, I mean, Finland, Sweden, you've got other people who are rethinking their desire to be part of NATO. Yeah, I love how some historians create what they call alternative histories, where you can see how things would have played out differently and how a logic would have made that much more sense had the events occurred differently than they actually did. Right. So imagine if he had swept through and done what he wanted to do in Ukraine in two days. Right. He kind of looks like an evil genius, but it worked. Uh, and imagine if the Battle of Britain didn't stop Hitler from an invasion of England. And now all of a sudden he's sent a clear communication that NATO's not expanding, that he's had his red line, it was crossed, and, and now NATO and the Euro as a group need to respect the, the ferocity and power of this country. That's not happening. No, now you've got Finland and Sweden considering NATO membership, something that's in, unheard of, really, in the last 30 or 40 years. So Russia's attempt at reducing Western influence in the region seems to have backfired. The segment of the population historically in favor of joining 20, 30 percent in both of those countries has now doubled to over 60 percent since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Hmm. And, and, of course, Finland carries, it's not a thousand mile border, but 800 something mile border with Russia. They're particularly attuned to the risk of military adventurism. So Sweden's not that far off. Russia's response to these two Scandinavian countries discussing joining NATO, well, they mentioned the Baltics are no longer going to be nuclear free. Is that a veiled threat? It's a part of a broader proliferation which has been kicked off by Russia's military incursion. The world understands that greater latitude and self-determination lies in the possession of nuclear weapons. I'm not saying that this is accurate, but this is the belief if you're just observing and saying, well, how come they can do things that we can't do? <laughs> well, maybe there's a few resources that are of greater consequence that you don't possess. That's yeah. clearly what the Iranians want, is, is to be treated the same Right. Perhaps everyone can be told what to do, but only those that maintain a degree of ambiguity in a theoretical conflict can do as they please. And so this is kind of a refreshed view of the Cold War, which makes engagement in the decades ahead a little bit more complicated. We all like good guys and bad guys and being able to parse them out very simply in, in a day where you don't know what you're getting from the news what is truth, what is fiction, what is pure propaganda, you know, it's going to be a lot more complicated. When you take the course on uh, how to use a personal protective weapon, you know, like a pistol, they tell you, don't pull it out unless you plan on using it. And in a way, when someone starts mentioning tactical nukes, that's either a veiled threat or it's a real threat. But one of the two, I mean, you just don't want to find out the hard way. Right. So the mention of moving nuclear capability into the Baltics, that's one thing. If the Russians drop hints at using tactical nukes, not just repositioning, 
how much is that going to galvanize the whole world? Like, what have we seen over the last decade? If you thought global warming was a crowd pleaser, you know, <laughs> try the threat of nuclear conflict. How much does that unify nations against you? Well, the other thing, too, is we don't want to focus just on Russia because we, we've continued to talk about China. Uh, what's with this Chinese announcement that the Chinese are, are planning to pull out of U.S. and Canadian British energy assets? Are they taking their marbles home before they take Taiwan? Yeah, Sinook, one of the largest Chinese oil companies, uh, they announced their preparation to exit British, Canadian, and U.S. energy assets. And I suppose in retrospect, you can appreciate the failed bid for Unical back in 2005. Uh, the U.S. argued this was a strategic asset. This is not just a corporate merger. And I forget what that was, 17, 18, 20, just shy of $20 billion uh, purchase, but it got shut down. And so this most recent announcement is the withdrawal from Anglosphere Energy Exposures. And it's not clear what this pertains to. Is it tied to potential Russian-related sanctions and that spilling over into China because China is planning on supporting Russian ambitions more powerfully? Or is it Taiwan? Yeah. Or is it the alternative Chinese-Taiwanese ambitions in the anticipation of Western seizure of energy resources in response to an action that they have in the making? Mm-hmm. We're no longer implicitly supportive of Taiwan here in the United States. I say implicitly because you've got the U.S. delegation on the island in recent days, including Lindsey Graham. It sends a very strong message of explicit support, just shy of a pledge. <laughs> so it's interesting what develops between the U.S. and all of our – keep in mind, China is one of our largest trade partners. Right. This is one of the things we'll – want to consider with Chris Blattman. We have a lot to lose in a conflict with China. Right. And we're not talking about boots on the ground and, and, and the expensive war. They're our largest trade partner. Right. You know, we do hundreds of billions of dollars of business with them every year. This is why you want to read a book on why we fight written by an economist. At first, I was like, why do I want to read a book if he's not a general? But he's an economist. And what he does, he's not blind in his analysis of other reasons to fight. But what he does is he really does a great job through game theory analyzing the cost of war. I was telling my wife when I was reading through it, I said, you know, what he shows is no one really wins a war. Everybody loses. And so a lot of times the calculation is how much are you willing to lose by going to war, or are you willing to lose a little bit ahead of time and not go to war? Well, I will say, if you go back to Barton Biggs' War's Wealth and Wisdom, there is at least the potential of a partial recovery of cost if you win. Mm. So yeah. you're sinking, sinking, sinking costs into this project on the belief that you will win. So is your belief tied to reality? Do you have the resources to actually carry through to completion and at least break even? Mm. You know, I mean, so this is you, you have to look at what it's going to cost and then make your decision. One of the things that I loved about what Blattman wrote in his book, you know, he works with gangs in Chicago, but he also has been down, you know, and looked at the Medellin cartels and some of the the way these gangs and the way these subdivision groups actually find a way of maintaining peace. It's not always sometimes it's violent. But they don't go to long extended war because they understand the cost to the drug trade or whatever. You know, whatever it is that brings their money in, 
they realize there has to be some degree of cooperation. Yeah, I think getting a diagnosis on cause is really important. And as you're trying to figure out what the costs of conflict are and measuring your decisions and what the consequences, either intended or unintended, will be, is really critical. Doug mentioned a New York Times article in one of this week's portfolio meetings. Uh, This is Doug Noland. And, you know, before the zero COVID policy, China had a zero sparrow policy. Uh, Zero sparrow policy. In the spring of 1958, Mao determined that the sparrow population was destroying crops. So he mobilized the population to prevent the birds from landing in the fields. Hmm. And they succeeded in, by some estimates, in eliminating 2 billion sparrows. This is, I think if you want to read the article, it's April 13th from the New York Times. Hmm. Long hmm. before the zero COVID policy, China had a zero sparrow policy. It's a fascinating article. Well, this sounds like the king, the mouse, and the cheese. You get rid of the sparrows, but you're creating other problems. So they succeeded. You kill 2 billion sparrows, you save the grain, and you pat yourself on the back, except that now you have an insect infestation that ruins the crops and contributes to one of the greatest humanitarian disasters of the 20th century. You've got tens of millions of Chinese that starve to death. Hmm. What will the unintended consequences of zero COVID be? Time will tell. What will the unintended consequences of zero rates be on, on a global basis? We're just beginning to find out. We've talked about this, you and I personally, how humbling it is to realize you just really can't control anything. I mean, honestly, do we really know what's going on? I mean, I don't know why the listeners listening to this point, because I have to claim I really don't know what's going on. I would have no idea how to solve, you know, okay, so zero COVID. Where's that going to go from here? I don't know. But I do know that people are screaming from their rooms in Shanghai. So we, when we look at conflict, I think one of the helpful things about models is they help us process things that we can't figure out. And it doesn't mean that you're going to figure it out perfectly. Right. Models are not perfect. They're flawed in many respects, incomplete in many but respects. But it allows the mind to compress the issue enough to where you can say, all right, well, is this a potential cause for war? So why we fight? We'll look at the five most common reasons people engage in conflict. And we'll look at four paths to peace as well. As we look at them, there's certainly application to Putin and Russia. Mm-hmm. And perhaps if we want to more deeply engage the Chinese and avoid conflict, we should figure out which of these factors would contribute to war in the future. And maybe avoid it. Yeah, war's not inevitable. That's not an inevitability. Thucydides was wrong. Sparta did not have to engage Athens. Germany did not have to engage Russia in 1914. If we look at the primary contributing factors to war, It's then helpful as part of a process of understanding and potentially de-escalation. So if we want to properly diagnose the current backdrop and properly prescribe a path towards peace, you know, this framework, I think, is helpful. There are certainly pitfalls on the path towards peace. But I I hope that uh, you engage with the conversation next week when Chris Blattman joins us and look for a copy of the book Between Now and Then. You've been listening to the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. I'm Kevin Oreck along with David McIlvaney. You can find us at McIlvaney.com, M-C-A-L-V-A-N-Y.com, and you can call us at 800-525-9556. 
This has been the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. The views expressed should not be considered to be a solicitation or a recommendation for your investment portfolio. You should consult a professional financial advisor to assess your suitability for risk and investment. Join us again next week for a new edition of the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary.